Hello, and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Thank you so much for not technically tuning in. I could tell from listening to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend so many times that this is not radio. I mean, I know I know that already just because, you know, I'm a person with a basic technical knowledge in my, in my generation, but, you know, still, it's not radio, but so tuning in would not be the term, but thank you for listening. I appreciate it, and speaking of that, it is actually today, as I record this, that our Spotify wrapped for, not my, per, well, my personal came out as well, but really it's the same for everybody anyway, who has a Spotify account. Your Spotify wrapped came out today, and that did for our podcast as well. And so we have had an incredible rise in listenership this year. We produced more content than I believe 85% of sports podcasts or 85% of sports content creators on Spotify. And look, I know quality over quantity and I'm proud of the quality that we have had. I've, I've tried to put out an interesting show each week, but, or, you know, whatever week I can get it up, get it up and streaming. But I'm very proud of the quantity that we've been able to churn out as well. And I'm very appreciative because certainly I would not be here if not for you, the listener, continually tuning in, quote-unquote. And I am just so grateful that we've churned out so much content this year that we've had, you know, we've had a fair listenership. I understand it's a smaller podcast. It's just, it's just me in terms of production. We're not on a, you know, we are not some sort of, major podcast run by any sort of company. It's just me in my basement at home. But I'm, you know, and I appreciate that it is, it's not just, you know, family and friends of mine that are listening. It's actual, it's other people that are out there who are listening to this podcast as the the demographics have shown that we've had more of an international following. And I'm really, really excited about that. I'm very, very happy about that. And so thrilled to have brought you so much content, so much hopefully joy over the last over two, little over two years now. It's hard to believe it's been a little over two years. A, a podcast that I started just before I got my job with the 87s and something that I've been able to keep going for most weeks over the last two years or so. This is, I think, our 88th episode. I'll figure it out when I edit this. I believe it is, or well, edit Well, I don't do a ton of editing, but when we put it up and I'm just very, very grateful to you for keeping us going, for giving me continual interest in doing this because, you know, there have not, there have been some weeks that have been tough for me. Hey, you know, every day is, every day is a struggle in some way, but it's been, a really nice, it's been a really nice time. And this at times has actually helped me keep, uh, keep, keep things up, keep, keep things emotionally steady on the rare occasions where I really need it. We all need that sort of positivity. We really need that right now. And so I'm glad if, if I can bring that to you or bring you just anything that you can enjoy from this podcast. We begin this week from the actual sports standpoint, with the college football playoff. Now, Georgia 
heading to the SEC title game versus LSU, undefeated, 12-0, number one in the country. They survive an early struggle with Georgia Tech. I believe it was 10-7 at halftime. I watched a little bit of that game. It was 13-7 Georgia in a game that they originally was probably probably should have been a blowout all the way through. Georgia Tech held in there for the first half and early into the third quarter before Georgia ran away with the game. And now the SEC championship game does not mean so does not mean so much anymore. Not not really for Georgia because I think Georgia is even if you know if you're a Georgia fan, heaven forbid. But let me rephrase that: if you're a Georgia fan, heaven forbid they lose, or or heaven forbid they get obliterated in this game, they'll still probably make the playoff. I would say the same for Michigan. I might be able to say the same for TCU as well. But it means. So much less now for LSU because LSU is not going to make the playoff. LSU stunned by a Texas A&M team, a Texas A&M team that had played so below par this year. This game in College Station, LSU losing by multiple touchdowns. The Tigers dropping to nine and three on the year. It's almost hard to believe that apparently Alabama has a better shot at the. National champ at the at the CFP than LSU does, despite the fact that LSU will actually be playing in their conference championship game and Alabama will not be. That being said, LSU does have a worse overall record. They have the same reg- they have the same conference record, and of course LSU had the tiebreaker. But LSU is nine and three. Alabama is ten and two. That being said, I at le- at the very least for a four team playoff, do not believe that a team that doesn't play in its respective conference championship game should be allowed in the playoff. I, I think I think that's unfair in the first place. Not to mention, I've mentioned so much that there is a clear bias toward Power Five teams, and more so in recent years toward the SEC and the Big Ten. These conglomerates, and they do have generally probably the best teams. But any other sport, any other league, it's based entirely on record. And here it is not. You think about Cincinnati and Memphis the year in the one game they lost. They uh, honestly kind of were robbed by officiating. Or UCF when they went unbeaten. You know, schools like in the last couple of years, Coastal Carolina and Liberty. A lot of these schools just treated unfairly where they'll take a one-loss SEC team or a two-loss SEC team over an undefeated American team. And so it's not really unfair. It's not really as much of the of a case this year, considering the best team to come outside the Power Five is probably Tulane at ten and two. I think they should be a much higher consideration. But at this point, by my standards, they wouldn't even be in the playoff anyway. But I get back to the actual standings here. Georgia at one. Even if they get blown out by LSU, which I highly doubt they'll. Will probably win that game. Georgia will probably still make the playoff. Michigan. Wow. You know, I got to tell you, I thought Ohio State was going to win this game. I thought Michigan certainly had a shot. And they were probably going to keep it closer than many would have expected. Wow. Really stunning. They defeat Ohio State by a score of 45-23 to in Columbus for their first win there since 2000. It's the first time Michigan has beaten Ohio State in consecutive years since 99 and 2000. And I can tell you 
that... Look, 22 points. Now, to be fair, this game on paper looks worse for Ohio State than it actually was. I think that's why the CFP still ranked Ohio State at 5th. But this game, I think, should eliminate Ohio State from playoff contention. Because, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're one of only two one-loss teams in the country. The other one is USC. But again, Ohio State will not play in its conference championship game. I know people kept saying that Michigan and Ohio State, you know, one of those, you know, those are the two dominant teams in the conference, undoubtedly, but they both unfortunately play in the same division. So the two best teams in that conference will not necessarily both play in the playoff. And probably not. And even though Michigan proved a lot more to me than Ohio State did, Ohio State on Ohio State kept this a fairly close game for a while. They were the better team early on in this game. Let's go through the game itself first. J.J. McCarthy throws for four touchdowns in this game, pretty much all of them deep balls. Well, one of them to Cornelius Johnson was not a deep ball, but they were all long touchdowns. And probably about three of them were long touchdown passes. Cornelius Johnson with two in this game. Donovan Edwards puts this thing away with two long touchdowns late in this game as his primarily starting running back, Blake Corum, plays very little in this game. After that injury against Illinois, he had one carry in the first half, in the, rather, in the second half against Illinois, played very sparingly in this game, and that's probably part of why, despite having a very strong offensive line, Michigan struggled with the ground game for most of the afternoon. But Donovan Edwards ultimately put it away. The thing that I don't think anyone really expected is that Michigan's passing game is for real. It stepped up. Even though J.J. McCarthy threw for, I think, under 200 yards a game this season and their offense is predicated on the ground game, Michigan was able to play Ohio State's type of football. They dominated through the air. And that is why, with 31 points on the board, almost entirely through the air already, Michigan was able to open up the ground game. Ohio State had no choice but to give a little wiggle room to Donovan Edwards, and they did. And it opened it up, and Michigan just put a fork through Ohio State. They survived the the lack of an early ground game. The defense, you know, the Michigan defense, again, for how good they were last year, with Aiden Hutchinson, a, I think it was either second or third in Heisman voting. Then you have David Njabo, two guys who both went high in the draft. Hutchinson going second overall. This defense this year might have actually been better. Maybe better, rather. And even when you remember you know, last year, Michigan gave up 27 points to Ohio State at home in that final game that finally put them in the Big Ten Championship game. Michigan this year allowed only 23 to Ohio State in Columbus. On a nicer afternoon, by the way, weather-wise. Lovely afternoon in terms of weather, especially compared to the flakes that were coming down in Ann Arbor last season. So last year was not a fluke. 
And J.J. McCarthy, although maybe did not live up to expectations, at least on paper, by comparison to Kate McNamara, did his job in this game in particular. This was a defining game for this guy who's only 19 years old. The passing game really did the bulk of the heavy lifting. Really did the bulk of the work for Michigan in this game. But their defense did a great job. They let up an opening drive TD to Ohio State. But what down 7-0 and down 10-3, they made multiple stops just to keep them in it. And Michigan was able to strike back. It turned into a shootout for most of the first half, most of the first half and then very early on into the third quarter, probably until the score was 24-20 Michigan, it was a shootout. It went from a defensive struggle early on and Michigan just trying to claw their way in, into survival, 10-3 after the first quarter. Michigan just doing an excellent job of going to the air. C.J. Stroud matching J.J. McCarthy. Marvin Harrison Jr., phenomenal in this game. Ohio State has probably the best receiving core in the country. That being said, I think Michigan does have a fairly deep receiving core. I don't think they have a number one like Marvin Harrison Jr., but very dominant. Ohio State also could have benefited, obviously, from Henderson playing in this game. That being said, Ohio State was kind of like Michigan early on, where they dominated it on the ground. And I will say, C.J. Stroud, Blake Corum probably now not going to win the Heisman. C.J. Stroud probably the same played well and threw a couple of touchdowns, but ultimately ultimately threw a couple of late picks that put away this game. Caleb Williams, to me, is has to be the Heisman winner now. Finishes with, I believe, 40 touchdowns and three 40 total touchdowns and three total interceptions. Thrown well in terms of yardage. It's a one-loss USC team that's been phenomenal. I think he's probably the guy. But back to this game itself, actually really going back to the conference itself, Michigan advances. I don't think Ohio State should be able to advance. I would say, really, on principle, no matter who won this game and no matter what the score, even if this was a one-point game, I mean, maybe if there was you know a really poor officiating that cost, cost one team this game, I would say that the loser of this game did not deserve to be in the college football playoff. As harsh as that may sound, even if it was a one-point game, and Ohio State played well for most of the day, I think only Michigan should be in the CFP, and I don't think Ohio State should be. USC is going to have to make sure to sway the college football playoff committee into making that a certainty but I, th- I think it should be, even if not Ohio State or Alabama, I think it should, I, honestly, I think Clemson's more worthy. Because Clemson, you know, they, they've played in a weaker conference, but they're at least playing in their conference championship game. Honestly, the same goes for Tulane. Honestly, it even goes, for me, at least on principle, I know they may not be as impressive a team, either of these teams, but UTSA and Troy are both two lost teams playing in their respective conference championship games. And they're not even ranked. So, very, very strong. Actually, UTSA maybe. Troy definitely is not. But for the Big Ten Championship game itself, it will be Michigan against, we all thought it was going to be Iowa. All Iowa had to do was beat a 3-8 and Nebraska team at home. 
and they struggled offensively. They were down, I believe, 24 to 3 and just struggled all day. They had a, a change at quarterback, but despite their best efforts, really kind of running out of time at the end, Iowa was just. Iowa lost because of their biggest issue, and that is their offense. That is their quarterback play in particular. They are a very good defensive team. Again, it's tight end you. Offensive line's fairly strong, but the quarterback play was just weak. And so Iowa lost, opening the door for both Purdue and Illinois on Saturday, the Iowa game being on Friday. Illinois did win. They blew out, I believe it was Northwestern actually, but as long as Purdue won, they'd be in. And Purdue knocked off Indiana 30-16 to in Bloomington, putting them in, the Big putting them in the Big Ten championship game for the first time ever. So Purdue will face off against Michigan on Saturday. Georgia and LSU will be on Saturday. By the way, Michigan quarterback Cade McNamara will enter the transfer portal. He had split the first, I think, four games with McCarthy this season, but had sat since in part due to injury, had led the team to the CFP semifinals last season, but was a little bit more of a game manager, I would argue, than, than McCarthy was, did not have the, the arm or the athleticism necessarily. Fine quarterback, and he'll probably find a, a starting job somewhere. TCU, by the way, as we get to that three seed, TCU ranked third in the country, obliterates Iowa State to finish 12-0, entering the Big 12 title game with Kansas State that will be in Arlington. That is something to note, actually. Georgia is essentially the home team against LSU in Atlanta for the SEC title game. Michigan more so the road team for Purdue. I don't know how well the Boilermaker fans will travel. Really, it'll probably be split. But West Lafayette, only about an hour 10, I believe, on the ground from Indianapolis. Ann Arbor, I think, about three hours away. And then, of course, TCU based in Dallas. That will be at eight, that game will be at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. So definitely a home game for the Horned Frogs. And probably a home game, essentially, as well for USC, as it's about a four-hour drive, I think, from L.A. to Vegas. USC will host Utah, in essence host Utah, in the Pac-12 championship game. USC put away Notre Dame in Los Angeles at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. Again, a rivalry game. But, uh, of course, one of the rare rivalry non-conference games, much like a Florida-Florida State, Georgia-Georgia Tech, something like that. And so USC had already clinched their spot. Utah needed some help. They needed Oregon to lose, and they needed Washington to win so they can enter a three-way tie for that second spot. I believe... They may have, I think that UCLA-Cal game may have been part of that equation as well. I'm not entirely sure. Regardless, UCLA did win against Cal. And Washington, late on Saturday night, it's actually Sunday morning if you were here on the East Coast, Washington held off Washington State in the Apple Cup. Oregon, very surprisingly, drops one to Oregon State on the road, 38 to 34 
as the Beavers forced a turnover on downs on each of the Ducks' final three possessions. A lot of great opportunities there for Oregon, but could not capitalize. It could have been a big day for Oregon. Could have been a big day for LSU. Also could have been a big day for Clemson. Had any, let alone all of those teams, won after this loss by Ohio State. Because I think you know maybe Michigan losing might have pushed them out a little further since they were already the, the three seed and more of the underdog, I suppose. But when Ohio State drops down and not, not only loses, but loses by 22, it really opens the door for LSU, for Clemson, for Oregon, and these... Previously, two lost teams, or rather Clemson, a one-loss team that was ranked a little lower at the time. These teams to jump, and they just could not. South Carolina stunning Clemson, 31-30 at Clemson, ending their long home win streak of, uh, I know it's at least 40 games. The Tigers will still enter the ACC title game at 10-2 against 9-3 UNC. North Carolina stunned by NC State at home in overtime after a missed field goal. And now it pretty much seems, although I don't think it's necessarily fair, I think I think Clemson should be in higher consideration. I think Tulane, and you know how I feel. It pretty much seems like if USC loses, more specifically if USC gets blown out somehow by Utah, then Ohio State could still be in play. I don't think Alabama has a real chance of making it. I don't think that's fair. I think a lot of it has to do with their pedigree. But if USC loses rather convincingly to Utah, the CFP committee, I think, unfortunately, and I think unfairly to USC, to Clemson, or to a lot of conference champion or, or, or conference championship game appearancing, appearing teams in, in, in outside the Power Five, Ohio State could still be let into the playoff. I don't think it's fair, but it is possible. So all USC needs to do is win. That's all they really need to do. But if they could just, I would say, at least lose by very little, I think that's all you can really ask for if you're the Trojans. So Ohio State and and I suppose Alabama could still be considered, but I mean it would seem rather wild if they kicked out both USC, who's has to be the most most vulnerable entering this championship game weekend. I can't imagine they'll kick out USC and either Georgia, Michigan, or TCU, most likely TCU, I suppose, but I can't imagine they'll kick out two teams. Frankly, I think it's kind of wild that they'd even let out one unless USC really got blown out. Depending on depending on what happens there, it's going to be interesting. I will note that a team that did finish with two losses and I think should be in consideration is Tulane. I think again, the American I think is that power is that sixth power conference. 
They knock off Cincinnati 27-24 on the road to reach the AAC title game for the first time. They will host UCF, who was able to survive South Florida this past week. So Tulane playing in the AAC title game for the first first time, and they'll host Central Florida in New Orleans. We move on to pro football and probably the uh, top three week of the year in terms of just NFL lore, and that is Thanksgiving week. Three really solid games we had on Thanksgiving Day, all one-score games. First game, Bills over the Lions, 28-25 to at Ford Field. They win at Ford Field for the second time in five days. Of course, they had had... They were forced to play there because of the snowstorm in Buffalo, winning their game last week. They win it on a very late field goal by Tyler Bass from 45 yards away. Ultimately, the I guess technically the difference in this game would be Michael Badgley's 29-yarder that Detroit missed. I mean, it's a when you, when you get a chip shot by that much, but again, you're playing revisionist history. The Lions really kept with the Bills in this game. They tied it with 23 seconds left on a field goal, but the Bills echoed the Chiefs last season by going 48 yards in just 21 seconds. You know, the the Kansas City's 13-second drive last season to force overtime against the Bills in the divisional round. Bass hitting one from 45, and the Bills go to 8-3. Lions dropped to 4-7 and seven on the year, but again, very, very promising showing from them. Giants and the Cowboys. Cowboys take down the Giants 28-20, Thanksgiving Day in Dallas. Big, the big difference in this game, I think, is the Giants going forward on fourth and about a yard and a half in their own territory and failing. Of course, the and the, the big thing was, of course, their defense could only hold up so much. Their defense played, I think the defense did everything it could, considering their secondary was absolutely depleted in this game. But the, Dallas scored a touchdown on this on that drive. It was almost the entire difference in the game as Dallas won by eight. Jones missed that pass to Barkley, which was tough. I I don't pin the blame on Barkley because, again, the ball was a little behind him. It's tough to make that play. You're kind of moving backward. And then on top of that, you know, I can't really blame Jones either because he has a defender in his face just to even get that ball away is impressive. But the bigger issue is that the Giants only had 10 men on the field. So that was huge right there. You have an 11th guy on the field. That might be a blocker to protect Jones. That could be, I don't know, a second man to aid Saquon. I have no idea, but... 11 versus 10 is a huge difference. So that hurt the Giants, and it really will hurt them in the long run when it comes to seeding, unless they can really play that well down the stretch. But it'll make a huge difference because Dallas now sweeps the season series from the Giants. They won by 7 at MetLife. They won by 8 at AT&T. And now if they end up tied at the end of the regular season, whether it is for a wild card spot or maybe even for the division or conference lead. I know the Eagles are out in front now on the Giants for sure by three games. They're two games up on Dallas, but still, you know, anything is possible. And the Giants do play the Eagles twice. The Cowboys play the Eagles once, I believe. A lot of divisional games down the stretch. 
this will mean a lot if they end up tied, as Dallas will have the tiebreaker. The last game of the day, great game. The Vikings defeat the Patriots 33-26 in what I would consider a shootout Thanksgiving night in Minneapolis. The Vikings outscore the Pats 10-0 in the fourth quarter despite a really rough night for Dalvin Cook, who had 22 carries for only 42 yards. Kirk Cousins played quite well, 30 of 37, 299, three touchdowns and a pick, was sacked once and kind of breaks the curse of just poor play in primetime games. Mac Jones played very well in this game, 28 of 39, 382, two touchdowns, no picks, was sacked three times, but the Patriots, like the Vikings, could not do much on the ground. Great game. The Pats drop to 6-5. and five. Vikings go to 9-2. and two. And believe it or not, the Vikings can actually clinch the division on Sunday with a win and a Lions loss. That's even more surprising. I know the Lions were supposed to be better this year, but still, the Lions finish ahead of the Packers. Or at least the Lions are the last team separating the Vikings from the NFC North, which they probably will win on Sunday and almost certainly will win this year. Vikings will face off against the Jets. That's not an easy game, but it will be in Minneapolis. We'll talk about the Jets a little later on. The Cleveland Browns knock off the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 23-17 in overtime on a game-ending touchdown by Nick Chubb. Njoku catches a touchdown pass on 4th and 10 in, I believe, the final minute of regulation time to tie the game. Nick Chubb for the game, 26 carries, 116 yards, and a touchdown. It is Jacoby Brissett's final game at quarterback for Cleveland for now. Brissett talked about not wanting any sympathy or any ceremonial send-off, etc., etc. Of course, Deshaun Watson will be playing next week. He's, his suspension is lifted, and strangely enough, he'll be playing in Houston for his first game back, and as a matter of fact, his first game as a Cleveland Brown in the regular season. Brissett for this game, 23 of 37, 210, one touchdown, one pick, sacked four times, carried the ball twice for 27 yards. Brady, 29 of 43, 246, two touchdowns, no picks, was sacked three times. Bucks dropped to five and six. Cleveland goes to four and seven on the season. Also in the AFC North, the Bengals win a playoff rematch 20-16 in Nashville against the Titans after a scoreless first quarter. Samaje Pirine and T. Higgins account for the two TDs for Cincinnati. They go to 7-4. Titans drop to 7-4. Tannehill for the game, 22-34-291. Jamar Chase did not play in this game, by the way. Meanwhile, in one of the big storylines of the week. The Jets, frustrated with Zach Wilson. He sits. Mike White returns at QB, becoming a cult figure within the Jet fan base. Has a brilliant rain-soaked performance against, you know, not a very great Chicago Bears team, especially with Justin Fields on the sideline. But Trevor Simeon, who originally was not supposed to, or at least right before the game, apparently was not supposed to play. Perhaps he had injured himself in warm-ups. It looked like Nathan Peterman was going to be at QB. Simeon was in instead. In instead. He actually performed, I think, rather adequately in relief of fields, but just did not benefit from the Bear defense, just the lack of defensive help. Mike White in this game, 
22 of 28, 315 yards, three touchdowns, two of them going to Garrett Wilson. Jets blow out the Bears 31 to 10 as the Jets go to 7 and 4. They jump the Patriots, which is especially big because the Patriots do have the tiebreaker after their win against the Jets. I believe it was last week. Simeon for the game, not awful. 14 to 25, 179, a touchdown and a pick. David Montgomery, 14 carries, 79 yards. Bears at 127 yards on the ground. But ultimately, just a dominating performance for the Jets. Over 300 yards through the air. Over 150 yards on the ground. Sort of a running back by committee position. Garrett Wilson, 5 for 95. Elijah Moore, 2 for 64. And the Jets now go to 500 at home. And 7 and 4 for the season. Again, the Bears... Dropped to 3-9. and nine. Very interesting game between the Commanders and the Falcons, two teams that are certainly in the playoff hunt. Washington especially, but Atlanta, of course, plays in a much weaker division. The Commanders hold off the Falcons by a score of 19-13 to 13 in a very run-heavy game. A late end-zone interception of Marcus Mariota on a tipped ball. Washington outruns Atlanta 176-167, to 167, but more importantly... The Falcons falter on that 80-yard final drive just to come up empty. And on top of that, they had an opportunity to get the ball back. It would have been you know, a very slim opportunity for a victory. Under a minute to play would have had to go about 80 yards. But they run into the punter. That pretty much puts away the game. Taylor Heineke throws for two TDs in this game. Mariota, 15 of 25, 174 in a TD. Brian Robinson, 18 carries, 105 yards for Washington. Falcons drop to 5-7, and seven, half game back of Tampa. Commanders go to 7-5, and five, and with the Seahawk loss, they are in the playoff picture. Now for the team on the other end of the beltway, the Ravens played in Jacksonville, dropped uh, the game rather surprisingly 28-27 to the Jaguars. Jags make a gutsy two-point conversion call to close out the game. Trevor Lawrence goes 29-37, 321, three TDs, Zay Jones goes off for 11 catches and 145 yards for this game. This was a shootout, at least in the fourth quarter. It was 12-10 Ravens at the end of the third quarter, and it was an 18. It was a 33-point fourth quarter. Justin Tucker, by the way, missed apparently by a few yards a 67-yarder that would have broken his own NFL record that he that he made, I suppose, against the Lions in Detroit. I believe it was last year, as a matter of fact. Jags go to 4-7. and seven. Ravens drop to 7-4. and four. Speaking of gutsy two-point conversions, the Chargers also go for two late, this time on the road. And they knock off the Cardinals by a score of 25-24. to 24. They go to 6-5. and five. Cardinals go to 4-8. and eight. Justin Herbert, 35-47, 274, and three TDs in this game. The Raiders win an absolute shootout, 40-34 to in overtime in Seattle. A huge win, undoubtedly their biggest of the year. Raiders go to 4-7, and seven. Seahawks drop to 6-5. and five. And just a career day for Josh Jacobs, who originally was apparently unlikely to play, had 33 carries for 229 yards and two touchdowns, including... An 86-yard winner in overtime, the longest 
touchdown, I believe it was the longest, at the very least the longest rushing touchdown in overtime since Garrison Hurst's 96-yarder for the Niners to beat the Jets on opening day of 1998. A phenomenal, phenomenal win for the Raiders who still have a, a, a faint glimmer of hope at the wild card. Seahawks dropped to 6-5. and five. Niners now in sole position in first place in the NFC West as the Niners beat the Saints 13-0. Chiefs beat the Rams 26-10. Sunday night game. Quite the game. The Eagles knock off the Packers 40-33 in a Sunday night football shootout. They improved to 10-1 on the year. Still the best team in football. Jalen Hurts, not bad through the air. 16 of 28, 153, two TDs. But he carried the ball 17 times for 157 yards. He had more yards on the ground than he did through the air. He combined with Miles Sanders for exactly 300 rushing yards. The Eagles with a late Touchdown drive at the end of the first half. Took one in a halftime, up 27 to 20. Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers left this game. He went 11 for 16 for 140 yards and two touchdowns, but he threw two picks and left with an injury. Jordan Love, not bad in relief, 6 of 19 for 6 of 9, rather, for 113. And a touchdown. Packers dropped to 4 and 8 and 1 and 5 on the road. Eagles 5 and 1 at home. The Monday night game. I did tune in for a little bit of this. Steelers beat the Colts 24-17 on Monday Night Football. The Colts really had an opportunity in the third quarter. They were down 16-6 at half and then got the ball to start it coming out of halftime. Dallas Flowers had an 89-yard kickoff return and took the ball all the way to the 19-yard line. Of the Steelers, the Colts drive for a touchdown. Jonathan Taylor from two yards out. Then the Colts ultimately fumble after a 16-play drive. They fumble on first and goal at the one-yard line. The Steelers recover. The Colts later scored again, took the lead. Steelers took it right back with a two-point conversion. The Colts with just poor game management in an 11-play, 67-yard drive in the last three or so minutes. They do not take a timeout. They let the clock run down about... 30 seconds. Again, just poor clock management. Fourth and three at the Steeler 26. Matt Ryan throws an incompletion looking for Paris Campbell. And the Steelers survive, go to four and seven on the year. The Colts drop to four, seven, and one on the season. There is one more thing I'd like to mention football-wise before we move on here, and that is that 10 of the, I know for sure 25, at least 25 women, 10 of the women who accused Deshaun Watson of sexual misconduct will be attending the game when he returns from suspension in Houston. I thought that was a very interesting note, and I'm very happy that these women are coming out. And, you know, it's a, it's a big risk, obviously. You know, some people are, some people are, could be in Watson's corner and could be very cruel. There are fans who could be cruel. Granted, the game will be played in Houston, but regardless, it's, it it takes a lot of courage to come out like that and uh, admit that you were a victim of such a thing. It can be very embarrassing for a number of people, although it should not be. And, and they did certainly didn't do anything wrong, but it's just a, a really fascinating thing and a very courageous thing that these women are doing as 
Deshaun Watson somehow returns to the field. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the World Cup. Most notably, the performance of the U.S. men's national team, who drew with Wales 1-1. Gareth Bale, of course, scored on a penalty, past the 80-minute mark to even things up. U.S. uh, rather surprisingly drew with England, a scoreless match. Christian Pulisic rang one off the crossbar. That was the best opportunity. The U.S. was probably the better team in that game, at least in terms of chances, although the although England was definitely better in terms of possession. But the U.S. needed to win against Iran in order to punch their ticket to the knockout stage, and they did so. They defeated Iran by a score of one to nothing. Christian Pulisic with a 38th-minute goal on a crosser fr- on a cross from Sergio Dest. A Dutch-born player, by the way, he will. That will be very interesting as the U.S. will face off against the Netherlands on Saturday in Qatar. U.S. advances to the round of 16 for the third time in their last four appearances. Pulisic on that goal did suffer a pelvic contusion, needed to be taken to the hospital. Fortunately, says he will play Saturday in a very excited, I believe it was a tweet. The U.S. also made a couple of brilliant saves in the final minutes, both by Matt Turner, native of Park Ridge, New Jersey, by the way. I'll point that out. And uh, multiple other players, I believe Walker, I think I could be wrong. I want to say Walker Zimmerman was the one who cleared uh, cleared away the ball that got behind Turner. Iran wanted a penalty once or twice late in the game. I thought it was... Pretty good officiating in this game. I thought the U.S. was also treated a bit poorly at times during the Wales game by the officials, but this was certainly a very well-officiated game. And credit to Iran, again, a top-20 program in the world, for really making it a close match, getting some opportunities there. They got a few opportunities late, but the U.S. does advance. And, you know, another thing to say about Iran, and I, I can't remember who tweeted this, but it was one of the American players had said something about how much he appreciated that team. And you have to give a ton of credit to the Iranian soccer club for one being so united against, but being so united and supportive of you know, women in their country. Obviously, there's a lot of tension, as there has been for a long, long time in Iran, but. There's a lot of tension there over protests in recent weeks, and I mean, understandably so if you're on one side of that argument. And then, there, of course, there was the thing with the U.S. taking down the Islamic Republic flag, and I don't think that's necessarily a... or taking down the Islamic Republic symbol within the Iranian flag in a, in a post. They've since changed it. And I don't think that has to do with... Islam itself, I think it more has to do with probably just the way the Iranian government has used it, and certain extremists within Iran and within the Middle East, the way some people have used Islam in an extreme fashion. And it's been rather unfortunate because it's not fair to the millions and perhaps billions, millions for sure, of practitioners or or people who practice 
Islam who are just peaceful, good people. That's the vast, I would say that's probably the vast majority of, of Muslims and probably the vast majority of people in general. But it was just rather unfortunate and a credit to the Iranian team for not really getting into politics. Obviously, the Iranian Football Association, I believe, lodged a complaint, pretty much said the U.S. should have been kicked out, which is, I, I, that's how you know we really do live in two different parts of the world. But it was, it was an Iranian club that was just full of class players, just full of classy men, classy people. And it was a well, well, it was a very well played game. And it was nice to see that at least on the field, on the pitch, things were not so petty. People weren't so petty and it was just the game itself. And it wasn't really tense in any way that other than soccer should be tense or that sport should be tense. It didn't bleed over. The game itself didn't bleed over into other things. And I, I was very happy for that. So a fine performance by both both clubs. The U.S. will advance. And as we take a look, actually, at the World Cup standings, this is after, this is as of Wednesday evening, by the way, Wednesday evening, at least here on the East Coast in the, in the United States. We know for sure the Netherlands, uh, with seven points, finishes, with, for, finishes first in Group A. Senegal finishes second with six points. They'll advance. England, with seven points, wins Group B. U.S. with five points, finishes second. Netherlands faces the U.S. Senegal faces England. It will be Argentina against Australia. And it will be Poland against France. 1-2 CND, 2-1 CND. Argentina with six points. Poland with four points. That's in Group C. France and Australia, each with six points in Group D. They both went 2-0-1. But France had a plus three goal differential. Australia actually with a negative or a minus one goal differential. As I record this at least, Spain and Japan, Japan by virtue of goal differential, a, a six goal edge over Costa Rica, has that tiebreaker over them. So Spain and Japan lead Group E. Croatia and Morocco lead Group F, each with four points, although Croatia with one more goal scored. Costa Rica and Germany in Group E still in it. Belgium and Canada still in it. Group G, we know for sure that Brazil will advance, having won each of their first two matches. And with six points, they're guaranteed at least a tie with Switzerland. And Cameroon and Serbia there as well, each with one point. Portugal has guaranteed is guaranteed to at least finish second in Group H. Ghana trying to finish things off. South Korea and Uruguay still there as well. And so we'll get into the knockout stage this weekend in Qatar. So we have some briefs remaining from baseball, basketball, and hockey. We'll start, actually we'll do that in reverse chronological order as a matter of fact. Hockey-wise, Rupe Hints re-signs with Dallas, eight years, $67.6 million, that, avoid, that avoids an impending free agency period for him. He's a, such a versatile player, such a valuable player for this team, plays on both the power play and the PK, records a solid plus-minus, finished last year with a career high, at least at the NHL level, career highs with 37 goals, 35 assists, and 72 total points. 
The Stars have now locked up Hints, Jason Robertson, who was a 40-plus goal scorer last year, and Jake Ottinger, uh, Ottinger for, for at least three years. Of course, Ottinger was a guy who kind of carried that team in the first round against Calgary. That series may have been a sweep instead of a seven-game series in overtime, if not for uh, Jake, Jake Ottinger. And so they've secured a good portion of the core. The Rangers trade Ryan Reeves to the Minnesota Wild for a fifth-round pick. That's a decent return considering what he is as a player in total. But, of course, Reeves is not even necessarily an enforcer, but really good in terms of just retaliation and keeping the team going. If if you know the, the Rangers a little more intimately, if you're, if you're from this area, of course, you know, there's the whole, Shesty, release us, as he kind of gets the team going as, as Igor Shosturkin leads the team out. He was a guy who that team needed desperately last year after just the mess that the league, that the league in part created with Tom Wilson and just a lack of, uh, lack of punishment. And then there was the whole situation and then, you know, Dolan letting go of, John Davidson and Jeff Gordon, perhaps in part because of that. And then Chris Drury comes in as the GM and does some things to build on what those two guys had already, serious things on what on, on what those guys had already done. They, they'd already done a tremendous job. And Drury brings in a guy like Reeves that they really needed if, if they figure, oh, we're not going to get protected by the league. Now, the, the thing is, Reeves had not been playing Gerard Gallant had not been playing him, so this trade does make a lot of sense in that sense. In that sense, but his loss could be detrimental to the Rangers if the team really does not find the spark it had last season. They've struggled. They're uh, maybe I think a point or two. They're they're not far outside the playoff picture, but that's the point. Considering they made the conference final last year, I know it was very much ahead of schedule, but this is a team that is not playing up to expectations after incredibly exceeding them last year. It's a good it's good for Minnesota though. Uh, Reeves had worked with Bill Guerin before, I believe. Guerin had played with Pittsburgh, Reeves played within that organization and uh, another guy who is I well Bill Guerin was much more of a, a scorer, but uh, Guerin as the GM was it could be a bit of a I, I suppose a physical player at times as well over his long, long career. Some more important news. Hall of Fame defenseman Borea Salming passes away this past week. He passed away this week at the age of 71 due to complications from ALS. He leaves behind his wife Pia and six children. He was, of course, besides being an incredible player, he was such a great influence on players from outside Canada, let alone outside North America. He was one of the first great hockey players in the NHL to emerge from Europe in particular, to emerge from Sweden. He's one of the great players in the history of the country, one of the great players in the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs organization, played 16 years with the Leafs, is one of 19 players to have his number retired by the organization, his number 21 having been retired. He is the Maple Leafs' all-time leader among all players with 620 assists. He's also the franchise leader among defensemen 
with 148 goals, 768 points, and 49 playoff points. He was named to the NHL's 100 greatest players as part of the league's 100th anniversary celebration in 2017. And I will say 71 for someone with ALS is actually, obviously he didn't, or we didn't know about it, probably didn't develop it until after his career was over. But a lot of people who develop ALS, I don't know if I'm just judging this based on you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, but a lot, a lot of people with ALS don't live to 71. And I can certainly say that Borja Salming had an incredible impact on his family, this game, his country, and uh, and to the country of Canada as well, the city of Toronto, and he will be dearly, dearly missed. Another serious health issue, by the way, Chris Letang of the Pittsburgh Penguins is out indefinitely after suffering a stroke. This is the second time he's actually suffered a stroke, and that's very concerning, especially for someone at you know, a physical peak, you know, so, uh, a defenseman. He's on the back end of his career, but the fact that anyone could have a stroke while playing hockey at really any level, but playing hockey at the professional level, playing in the National Hockey League and suffering a stroke, it just shows ultimately, you know, we're all human. Anything can happen to anyone, unfortunately, but a terrible, terrible thing. And not only is he a a player of any kind in the NHL, but one of the premier defensemen of his era. And so we wish him nothing but the best. I mean, I hope I hope he can just come back to play again. Well, we hope he'll be all right, but let alone if he can ever play again, we'll see. Again, out indefinitely, they haven't said anything. We haven't heard anything about him potentially having to retire, but it does bring those questions into mind when you consider the age of, uh, just from a hockey standpoint, the ages of uh, Latang, Malkin, and Crosby, how they extended those guys to try to keep them and, and finish their careers together in Pittsburgh. But uh, some very, very sad news, and of course we wish the uh, the best for Christopher Latang. Much uh, lighter, it's still injury news, but it's uh, not as severe, fortunately, as we move to the NBA Carl Anthony Towns will be out several weeks with a calf strain. Of course, Towns is so central to the identity of the Minnesota Timberwolves. He's a guy who has received criticism at time, but at times, but maybe it's also because you know, at Minnesota's not, not Minneapolis isn't the biggest market, especially for basketball in this day and age. He hasn't really had the core that some of the stars in this league have had, but it's a guy who has had his struggles. You know, it, it has not been an easy last couple of years, last few years for Carl Anthony Towns, losing his mother amongst several family members that he lost during the pandemic due to COVID. A guy, I, I know he's actually from, he's actually from my area, he's from Edison, I believe, uh, Edison, New Jersey, and a guy who's just well-respected around the league. Team is 10-11, as I record this as a matter of fact, half game back of the Warriors for that last play-in spot in the Western Conference. The Timberwolves do at least have a little bit of a crutch in that they were, of course, traded for Rudy Gobert. And so Carl Anthony Towns have been playing more at the power forward position, similar to the, the greatest Timberwolf ever, actually, Kevin Garnett, who was kind of, could play kind of like 
Tim Duncan could play center, could play power forward, could alternate. So they have a little bit of a crutch now, I think, with Gobert at center, but it's going to be a struggle for the next however many weeks with Towns out of the lineup. And the Mavericks also making an interesting move. Mavericks at 10-10. and 10, They have the tiebreaker over the Warriors. They're the nine seed right now in the Western Conference. But they move to sign Kemba Walker, who had not played since last season after being traded from the Knicks. Walker, hopefully healthy, and just trying to offer as much as he can to the Maverick organization. There are a handful of players, formerly of the Knicks, who are now playing in Dallas. Tim Hardaway Jr., I don't believe that was there when Kemba Walker was, but still a, certainly a veteran. Tim Hardaway Jr. there. Frank Nidalekina is in Dallas. Reggie Bullock is in Dallas. And so it, it could be a, a good transition for him. Another guy who played in New, in New York, Spencer Dinwiddie, is also there. And so it, it's, a, it's a team with a fairly deep roster that made some noise last year. They've maybe gotten away from some tension by trading away Christoph Porzingis or parting ways with him. And so it's it's a low-risk, high-reward move, I think, for Dallas to try to make that one. Moving on to, to baseball before we close, the Astros, I did not see the financial aspects of the deal, but the Astros signed Jose Abreu to a three-year deal, which is insane. Of course, they have Yuli Gurriel, but he's 38 years old. A lot of people forget that, but Yuli Gurriel is 38, did not produce much in this postseason for Houston. Trey Mancini came back from injury and were very, uh, rather, came back from fighting cancer and then was ultimately traded by the Orioles to the Astros. Did not produce a lot, didn't really play a lot at first base. And of course, Abreu, a little up there in age as well, a little more than we realize as time moving quicker than we realize. But Abreu, of course, won the American League MVP in 2020, that COVID season, was so central to the White Sox identity, a team that lost to the Astros in the division series in four games in 2021, and as the White Sox had, had won the division for the first time since 2008, or the first time they had a home playoff game since 2008. So a huge blow for them. The Astros continue to improve their team, and they get a big veteran presence in their lineup after winning the championship. And the last thing, Miguel Cabrera, planning to retire after the 2023 season. He will have played 21 seasons for his career. He is undoubtedly a first ballot Hall of Famer, 2012 American League Most Valuable Player, and Triple Crown winner. He was the first some people may forget, of course, you know, in retrospect, we think about Mike Trout having a higher war that year in his rookie season and Trout winning MVP three times since then. But a lot of people forget that Miguel Cabrera was the first Triple Crown winner in Major League Baseball, not just the American League, but Major League Baseball in 45 years since Carl Yastrzemski in 1967. It's such a rare, rare feat. It has not been accomplished since. Even Aaron Judge, with his remarkable season, of course, fell off in terms of batting average down the stretch as Luis Arias was able to win the batting title for Minnesota. But Cabrera, MVP, Triple Crown winner, 500-plus home runs, 3,000-plus hits, part of a very, very rare air 
He is, you know, we I mentioned this early, in an episode earlier this year that Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols could be stacked alongside one, one another in terms of arguments for the greatest right-handed hitters of their generation, let alone all time. They are both certainly up there. And I, I argued that Cabrera, at least as a pure hitter, a contact hitter, and someone ju- just for, you know, singles, just everything overall might be a better hitter than Albert Pujols is, but a phenomenal player nonetheless, a 2003 World Series champion as a rookie with the Florida Marlins, won the American League pennant with the Tigers in 2012. That's a, a team that did, you know, did everything but win the whole thing. 2011 got to the ALCS, took the Rangers to six games. 2012 got to the World Series, but were ultimately swept by the San Francisco Giants. 2013 had a huge opportunity against the Red Sox, up one game to none in Boston, then ultimately losing that second game after giving up that grand slam to Ortiz. Lost that series in six games, but just a phenomenal stretch in Detroit. 16 years with the Tigers. He can be considered among the greatest Tigers of all time. He is. He has gotten to that point where he is... I don't know about better, but he is clo- at the very least close to Ty Cobb, uh, as well as you know Hank Greenberg, Al Kaline, a number of fine players within that organization's history, and uh, a guy who will be missed within the Tiger organization, but he will make the most out of this year. A Tiger team that showed signs of improvement this year maybe could somehow let him go out on top. Thank you so much for your time and your consideration. I, I encourage you to, to take a look at some of our take a look at our Spotify Wrapped. You can find it on my social medias, uh, my social media, on my socials, I suppose, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wish you the happiest of Thanksgivings as we're just coming a little less than a week off of it, and the happiest of holidays to you as well. Although I'll fortunately be able to say that to you a couple more times, and so once again. This is Chris Russo reminding you that good things come to those who wait.